Ten with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 227th program of Think Again, broadcasting live from the 3CR studio from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Think Again is a program of Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation working for social change for a quarter of a century now. I'm Jennifer Burrell. Jacques is having a week off today, but we are privileged to be joined by Jeremy Walker. Jeremy is a senior lecturer in social and political science at UTS and amongst many other things he's an expert on the history of the petroleum industry and the international networks and organisations that work behind the scenes to affect public policy to protect corporate profits. Welcome to the program Jeremy. Thank you, it's a real privilege to have been invited on. Um, Great to come on your show and uh, the opportunity to speak to all your listeners around this important topic. Thank you. Mm, fabulous. And I think listeners will be really interested in this. So I said you're an expert on the international networks and organisations that work behind the scenes to affect public policy. But I'd really like you to zero in on the kingpin in all of this, the Atlas Network. So everyone remember that, the Atlas Network. Uh, so can you tell our listeners what the Atlas Network is and why um, it was set up, and who's behind it. Okay, well, um, we've all heard about, you know, your listeners, I'm sure, will be aware of uh, free market think tanks. For example, the Institute of Public Affairs, which has an enormous uh, presence and impact in Australian politics for decades. Mm. Um, They may have also heard of the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney, Um, and perhaps also uh, some of the larger, more famous think tanks, free market think tanks in the US, like... Cato Institute, the Heritage Institute, um, and perhaps even the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Um, and these organisations have been the, the primary way in which policies, which are arguably quite unpopular, have been uh, marketed and pushed uh, into the public eye um, through, you know, uh, through extensive and con- continuous media interventions but also through uh, direct kind of um, access and influence over the parliament, particularly in the Liberal Party. And what, um, whilst we are all probably familiar with the policy that they've pursued and that actually they've been very successful in winning, such as the privatisation of public assets, um, infrastructure, such as, you know, in Australia, the coal-fired electricity grids, which are all built uh, by state governments and uh, public interest bases, telecom, things like that. Um, as well as uh, pushing to privatise education, healthcare, and even government itself by outsourcing um, government sources to private providers or, you know, uh, getting private consultancies to take over jobs that were once done by the public service. Um, as well as things like deregulation, so, the, you know, the kind of voluntary environmental compliance rather than, you know, what they call command and control science-based policies, um, tax cuts for the wealthy, tax cuts for corporations, uh, free trade policies, uh, you know, and, and agreements at the international level, 
And all of these things uh, have been largely come about only because of these free market think tanks. But what um, and, and people might be familiar with or have engaged in, you know, perhaps uh, resisting or criticising different aspects of this big policy program. Um, very few people have ever heard of the, the Atlas Network. And what that is is basically two things. Firstly, there's a central office uh, which has that name. Originally, it was called the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, and that's uh, on the campus of George Mason University. Uh, in Virginia, not far from the US capital, where they exert a very powerful influence. So it's one sense in which we can talk about it. But the way in which I prefer to talk about it is that the Atlas Network also stands for all of these free market think tanks around the world, which is affiliated. Um, and of that, uh, there's now currently somewhere between 500 and 600 of these organisations, which are uh, partner organisations with the Atlas Network. Wow. Um, and, in, and they're now operating in at least 100 countries. And so it's when we start to see that there is, in fact, this pattern uh, behind the, you know, uh, quite radical and often very rapid uh, policy shifts or, that we see in these areas or even you know, changes in government, um, even kind of a shock and awe policy of uh, this these, uh, legislation being introduced very quickly uh, without much public debate. Once you see that there's a pattern here, that pattern is the Atlas Network, and they, there's a kind of Central coherence. Um, and the Atlas Network offers itself. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, it's not clear to the extent to which they themselves coordinate all of these international campaigns. It's certainly, the case that each of these think tanks uh, follows very, very similar uh, objectives. Um, some of them pursuing different things at different times uh, to different audiences, and uh, some of them will be, you know, pursue have a quite moderate and respectable tone and uh, appeal to the kind of you know, the business community, others will be just uh, extremely radical and, and try to uh, create sort of popular taxpayer results and stuff from below. Mm-hmm. Um, but, th- yeah, so there's a kind of, there is a degree of coherence. And one thing that's really clear about all of this is that um, whilst we can't reduce it to to fossil fuel companies and transnational oil companies uh, and so on, it is certainly the case that it's primarily through this global political infrastructure of the little known Atlas Network that um, that these the fossil fuel interests have covertly and continuously conducted a global campaign of counter-science disinformation, so saying the climate science isn't real or that that you know that it's uh, that you know it's not as bad as they say, or that uh, you know that, that if we were to have a carbon tax or any policy that would address it that would ruin the economy or these kind of things that we hear all the time, um, you know, this campaign of climate policy destruction and even state capture where uh, your key figures aligned with or working with Atlas Network think tanks uh, inserted into parliament or into the policy process in different ways. Yeah. Um, this has been happening since at least the late 1980s, and I would say that the Atlas Network is probably the primary reason why all efforts to have a, a binding international climate treaty is uh, backed up by national legislation to shrink the size of the fossil fuel sector and avert catastrophic climate change. I would yeah. say that that is the primary reason why all of those efforts have uh, largely failed over the last you know, 30 or 40 years. Well, Jer- Jeremy, that's all quite shocking. And I think what's really amazing and probably says something about their strategizing of the Atlas Network, that we don't know much about it. And, it, and it's really... Um, um, I, I suppose it would be good to hear a little bit of the history of it um, from, mm-hmm. I think, from after Second World War. But I suppose before 
asking you that. I just want to make a comment too that there have been lots of there have been uprisings, popular uprisings by people in the streets at different stages. You know, we had, of course, in the late sixties, there was all the um, um, uprisings in Europe, beginning with the Paris up rising in 1968 and lots of people occupying the square. I did see a great um, SBS documentary about that recently called 19, starts with 1968. And then of course, there's all from 2010, we had the Arab Spring with um, people in Egypt or in Cairo occupying um, the square in Cairo for 18 days. And there was um, people's uh, mass protests in Brazil, but I guess, and Hong Kong protests, of course. So what, what's occurring to me is how strategic um, the Atlas Network seems to be. And is, is that part of why a lot of these people's protests for equality of different types, freedom, equality, um, better conditions, more um, equity, why they've failed as well. So I guess that's a big question for you, but please give me a bit of a history of the Atlas yeah. Network, but explain why they they are work they are so much more successful than all these popular uprisings that seem to dissipate. Certainly. It's a very broad canvas you've just drawn for me. I don't know if I can speak to all of them. Maybe um, the strategizing, maybe maybe focus on the history of the Atlas Network and sure, its strategizing. Well the the I mean, the key issue that I mean, at the core of what you've just mentioned is the you know, the fundamental, um, you know, the, the the view that came to prominence um, in the early 20th century that democracy was the only legitimate way to, for a, a government to be run. Really, that um, that you know, the idea that that the people should rule themselves through uh, through you know universal suffrage elections where everybody had the same vote regardless of how much property they owned and um, that they should be able to elect people to their parliaments and make the laws under which they agreed to live so this was not always the case and of course um, you know a lot of one way you can tell if you're looking at an Atlas network think tank or dealing you know having a look at their websites and there's hundreds of these institutes out there um, if they have something like they talk about classical liberalism and classical liberalism is really a kind of nostalgia to late 19th century capitalism before there was democracy, right, where you had a maybe very limited democratic system where property qualifications were in place. So it could be, you know, ensure that uh, you would never get a popular majority that would uh, really challenge the um, owners of uh, the, the major assets and, and, and corporations that uh, run the economy. And so it's really, um, I mean, to really begin the story, we need to go back to 1945, I guess, when... Um, when the British people elected a Labour government, um, uh, Churchill, having won, you know, the, led the British to a victory, um, was once the normal elections came back, they, he was voted out, and they voted the Labour Party in on this pro, uh, campaign promise of a cradle-to-grave uh, welfare state, um, universal health care, the National Health Service, um, universal access to education, widows' pensions, um, unemployment uh, support. Um, Full employment policy, and all of this was to be achieved through through um, the nationalisation of the key industrial assets, which, not incidentally, were um, around fossil fuels. So, uh, coal mining was nationalised, the railways were nationalised, gas was nationalised, uh, the Bank of England was nationalised, uh, the central bank, um, the steelworks were nationalised, and so that was how they were going to achieve these, uh, this sort of you know much more egalitarian where there was not mass poverty and uh, lack of education and so forth. 
And, and the key figure here is um, a guy called Anthony Fisher, who was born to a family of mine. I know a quite wealthy family, the elite schools of um, Eton and Cambridge. And he was a war veteran in the RAF. Um, and he was shocked, like many of his class, when Labor came to power in 1945. Um, and not long after that, his path crossed with uh, the radical uh, right-wing uh, Austrian economist Frederick von Hayek, um, who, in, who had written a book, quite famous book, called The Road to Serfdom, in which he argued that this move towards um, social democracy would inevitably lead to a totalitarian society where you know, people, the public servants would eventually become a Gestapo and there would be no freedom at all. Um, it was quite a radical thesis, and it was promoted in the US in a big way by Reader's Digest and uh, by, by US capitalists who... Um, and the audience for that were people in America who didn't know any of the European history that Hayek was talking about. Uh, and American capitalists very quickly turned this message into if uh, people were to continue to support the New Deal policies uh, in the US, then this would inevitably lead to a fascist society. And you know, they kind of completely collapsed the, distinct, the distinction between fascism and socialism at the start um, to their advantage. So Fisher got hold of one of these dumbed-down versions of the book and then went and looked up Hayek, who was at the London School of Economics at the time. And um, Hayek advised him that rather than going to Parliament as a Conservative MP, Conservative MP which was apparently his plan, um, he should actually aim rather at have a sort of medium to long-term strategy to try and change and influence the ideas that were sincerely held by what Hayek called the second-hand dealers in ideas, that is, the journalists and the lecturers and, lecturers and the teachers, right? And only then you get a big shift in um, public opinion that would allow the, um, the, the program of uh, you know, the free market doctrine of radical uh, deregulated capitalism to reassert itself. So uh, he took that advice, um, Fisher did, and he, start, he set up an organisation called the Institute of Economic Affairs in London in 1955. And um, that didn't, go, didn't get very far until in the early 60s, uh, Shell and BP came on board and later Rio Tinto, a British uh, multinational mining ventures, um, and they came on board and provided significant funding, and eventually they had a huge roster of international British and then also American uh, corporations, particularly oil and mining and banking. Um, so it was kind of... They had this huge... Uh, and, this, and then this became so effective that uh, when in 1979 Margaret Thatcher was elected uh, as the first neoliberal uh, prime minister elected... Uh, you know, to, to power, um, that she attributed this entirely to what she called the climate of opinion that the Institute of Economic Affairs had, had created through its uh, incredible ability to uh, pump out uh, you know, easy-to-read books and pamphlets and uh, you know, columns and uh, they you know, flood the university and the public school libraries with these, these books, which are paid for by these corporate donors, but without ever telling the public that, that in fact, uh, about the corporations that were behind effort and that's his public opinion management. Um, it was so successful that through the 70s, uh, the early 70s, Fisher was in high demand. And so he went to the US and uh, advised where he met Charles Koch, who went on to become one of the most uh, important funders of the Atlas Network, uh, in the US at least, as far as we know. And um, that, that whole think tank method he kind of sold to them, to the business leaders he, he spoke to, as a kind of counter-reaction to the 60s and 70s movements that you mentioned, so you know, the civil rights movement, 
uh, you know, the black power movement, the environmental movement, feminist movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, so all these social movements, um, you know, which had massive popular support, uh, he told them that you could push back against this through this method of, uh, you know, setting up all these research institutes, which would, of course, be tax-deductible as well, that could put out these pro-corporate, uh, radical pro-capitalist messages without the identities of the corporations um, that were paying for it uh, to be made public. And so in that, cause the problem was that these companies were extremely unpopular with the public. And if Exxon came out and said, we don't want to have you know, uh, environmental regulations or you know, we don't think the climate change is real, well, everyone would immediately say, that's your profit motive talking and not taking notice of it. So this method of being able to saturate the public sphere and the policy-making process with uh, all kinds of messages that uh, corporations wanted to be projected out there um, without ever telling the public who was paying for it. So it was a very successful way, and they, they themselves described what they achieved through this method as a counter-revolution. Mm. I'll just remind listeners... Um you're listening to Think Again, 3CR, 855 AM on your dial, 3CR Digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au. I'm Jennifer Burrell and today I'm joined by Jeremy Walker from UTS who's telling us about the Atlas Network which coordinates right-wing think tanks and pro-business corporations and organisations around the world to affect public opinion and public policies in their favour. And um, as Jeremy's describing, we've certainly seen its success over the last few decades uh, with the neo with the ascendancy of neoliberal policies and governments and, and I think for me, particularly the notion that we should leave the free, unfettered market to promote all of our interests. So, um, Jeremy, I'll let you finish that history. And also, can you give a few grounded examples of the workings of the Atlas Network campaigns in Australia? Certainly. Well, so, okay, um, Fisher uh, was his first commission outside of the US, uh, outside of England, to build one of these think tanks was in Canada, where he was invited. Um, to set up the Fraser Institute, uh, I think in 1974, uh, by again by, um, and again they were very careful not to disclose who was behind it, but uh, it was you know it was petroleum logging mining interests because uh, they were facing this um, this kind of crisis. On the one hand, big oil companies have dominated the Middle East uh, and North Africa. They were all being kicked out by the Arab nationalist movement who wanted to take back control of the oil. But, mm-hmm. Anglo-American oil companies. So they were being progressively ejected from the Middle East where they had their biggest investment. But at the same time, you had uh, Australia, Canada and uh, the UK, for example, um, you you had progressive governments setting up national oil companies in response to the huge price rises uh, that the Arab oil crisis or the Arab oil revolution more properly had created. So they wanted, you know, and the same happened here in Australia. You had the Whitlam government, one of its key policies was to uh, create a national company to exploit the Northwest Shelf gas and uranium and uh, all the fossil fuel and energy minerals. Um, so the Centre of Independent Studies was his second commission, was set up in '76, um, precisely, and they said so to push back against the program of the Whitlam government, whether it was um, on indigenous rights, uh, environmental protection, uh, national control of national resources, corporate taxation, and the the key uh, the key protagonist here was. John Benison, who was the founder of the Santos, the massive Santos gas company, uh, and the first funding tranches that they got to support this came from Santos, 
uh, Shell oil company, which is involved in many of the early generation think tanks, uh, Western Mining Corporation, Rio Tinto, BHP, and also the Adelaide Advertiser, um, a Murdoch paper. And um, in 1981, it was in such demand that Fisher established a new organisation called the Atlas Economic Research Foundation in the US, and its goal was to sort of mass-produce these think tanks, to proliferate them uh, and build them everywhere and expand them out, you know, not only in the English-speaking world, but very quickly started to, uh, with the encouragement of the Reagan administration in the 1980s, early 80s, to expand into Latin America, Guatemala, Chile and Argentina, Peru and places like that. And then um, in more recent years, uh, particularly since around 1988, when uh, climate uh, catastrophe appeared on the public horizon um, and you had moved to an international treaty to uh, restrict fossil fuel emissions, um, according to what scientists were telling and according to what also the oil companies all knew uh, long before most people did because they'd been studying this problem themselves, at least since the late 50s, without ever questioning the science. In 1988... Um, Exxon uh, announced to its internal uh, you know, executives that they would be leading the petroleum industry's response to the climate change policy debate, and that they would rather be they would be emphasising the uncertainty in the science, which of course they never had raised before, and um, so that became their strategy. Um, so right, right, immediately that this debate began. Already they were starting to pump out uh, books about why the uh, scientific consensus was, was false or too hastily uh, agreed upon or not real. And, uh, and also another line of anger, another line to if you were to do anything about it, like through carbon taxes, which is the obvious choice, that that would wreck the economy, cause mass unemployment, um, and, you know, or you name it. We've heard all of this before. But between 1988 and the present, um, yeah, the size of the network grew from around 40 or 50 or 60 think tanks in 1988 to its present scale of around uh, maybe up to 600 in in over 100 countries. It's huge, um, Jeremy, and it's just amazing how they've maintained their secrecy um, given their reach and breadth. And this is key to it. So they've been very successful for two reasons. Firstly, they've been extremely rigorous at protecting um, from the from the public the knowledge of who they in fact work for. They're very touchy about uh, who finances them. Um, and keep that very much under wraps. Um, it's the last case in the States where this can be tracked. Uh, if you look at, uh, you go to websites like DSMOG, which has been carefully collecting all this information. In the US, they have disclosure around corporate philanthropy and, uh, and uh, charity, charitable entities, and so you can actually track a lot of this money. And, and where we know about it, it all comes from uh, the, the big funding, it's not always oil companies, but, you know, they've also been major pharmaceutical companies and uh, banks and so on that push different uh, agendas through the network. Um, but, but that secrecy has been critical. And, and the other thing is that they never, never, uh, the, the Atlas Network think tanks never mention the fact that they're all part of a giant network that works together. So it appears to the public that they're getting all of this different, you know, these different, uh, you know, claims that are constantly appearing, for example, Murdoch Press is always citing uh, different Atlas Network institutes as if it was uh, genuine academic research. Um, and there's they're, they're such a vast presence that it appears to the public that a lot of people believe these things or that, that you know, that it would be reasonable if they did. But what they don't realise is that, that, that these messages are all coming from the same global entity uh, in ways that are designed to create 
uh, and manipulate public opinion, but also to swing elections, uh, you know, to to change the, the, the vote in, uh, obviously, referenda, which is very relevant here, um, and to also install uh, politicians that have uh, committed to, or, you know, to the, the think tank's uh, policy agendas, yeah. including by inserting parliamentarians into the parliament. So, Jeremy, I'm wondering how we can disrupt this a bit. And so mm. this is my final question and the time yeah. has gone much too fast and I would love to have you back on again. But before I'm we... Very happy to. Great. And but before we leave today, can you tell our listeners what can we do to counter the activities and campaigns of the Atlas Network and help bring about the change we need for a fairer and healthier and more sustainable future? Yeah, thank you. Well, um, I mean, to to give you a brief example, like I've been studying um, the Atlas Network for many years, and um, as soon as uh, the when the recent uh, referendum on uh, recognising Australia's you know sixty five thousand year old Indigenous communities in our constitution finally, and uh, and having this very very minor constitutional reform to have a completely non binding advisory body in the Parliament, the voice. This is a very small concession to what would, in my view, be a just uh, constitutional settlement uh, with Aboriginal Australia and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Um, the organisation that drove that entire no campaign was called Advance, uh, and mm. I just happened to know that, that that was set up by the same individual who also uh, either you know, founded the Centre for Independent Studies back in the 70s um, or were on the board of the Centre for Independent yeah. Studies. And uh, also, just in the price of more mundane, their, their careers, their public careers, had been fostered by various uh, branches of the Australian Atlas Network. And just incidentally, um, sorry, just incidentally, we did actually have a program covering that probably about five weeks ago. The big money yeah. forces behind the right-wing no campaign. Yes, and, and uh, I mean, you can even find even now an article by Mundine on the Senate and Penso's website where he quite clearly says that the problem... With the voice would be that it would allow traditional owners to uh, to speak against. Uh, you know, he says this himself. Um, the coal projects like the Udani Coal Project or James Price Gas Point, James Price Point or Beetaloo Basin Gas Project. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what I managed to do, and it's only because there's only, as far as I knew at that point, one or two media articles that directly looked at the Atlas Network, or even any academic papers that, that there's only a tiny handful that actually talk about it directly. So what I was able to do was, um, you know, as that campaign was live, was actually to talk about the Atlas Network itself um, mm. as a coherent entity that acts in concert internationally. Um, and I think this is probably one of the best ways that we can do this is to draw attention to um, the individuals and the organisations and the policies and the governments that are um, that are aligned with or brought about by the Atlas Network mm. and. To, to speak about it and talk about it because we often find ourselves, uh, you know, at a loss to understand where all these kind of assaults on civil society, uh, democratic rights, uh, you know, relatively egalitarian economic policies and, and most importantly of all, um, the you know, continuous permanent uh, disinformation campaign around climate policy, um, that it's only when... So I would advise uh, people in Australia and elsewhere to... To you know, to look at this stuff and find out about it. one of the best ways you can do that is to look at uh, there's a website called DSMOG, which has been tracking climate information for a long time, and they've built up over the years uh, profiles of, of 
many, many of these think tanks around the world. So, um, and um, they have very good stuff there too. So, uh, Jeremy, I'm going to have to call, come, call this to a close, but what I will do is I'll put some of these links to the sources that you mentioned on our program yep. page and we'll... we'll will we'll shine bright light on the Atlas Network as a, as a counterfoil to their um, strategic secrecy. So thanks so much for um, coming on the program today, Jeremy at Walker, and telling us about the insidious behind-the-scenes work of the Asia, uh, Atlas Network and its affiliates and its pro-corporate affiliates. Especially thank you for your meticulous research and scholarship over time and shedding a light on all of this and and for bringing it to the attention of other activists and the broader public, including 3CR listeners today. Thank you so much um, and I really appreciate it. I think it's absolutely vital for the defence, not only in Australia but everywhere, of democracy and indeed uh, a habitable planet. Mm. Um, so thank you for your time and, and uh, thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Real pleasure. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio today. If you want to contact us or comment on our programs, please email borderlandsborders at borderlands.org.au. Our programs are available by podcast on most platforms and on the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Meanwhile, please enjoy Milku Mana by King Stingray. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.